Brian Selkis is bringing on his crypto theses for 2023 in today's episode. Fantastic way to end the year and look at the next year. David, what are we talking about today? Every single year, Ryan Selkis comes with a massive document that is a fantastic way to snapshot the year. It always feels like this uh, document that comes out every single year out of Missouri that Ryan Selkis spends weeks producing. It's a great way to tie a bow on one year and look forward into the next. So while this is a, a snapshot of 2022, it is also Ryan's 2022 crypto theses. Uh, and so this is just for all of the, the tunnel vision that we've got focusing on SPF and FTX and contagion. This is a nice way to zoom all the way back and talk about just the trends across the industry, which I'll remind the bankless listener is very broad and wide. So trends in Bitcoin, trends in Ethereum, trends in DeFi, trends in NFTs, trends in CeFi, uh, and got to unpack. We do have to unpack the, the regulatory landscape, the, the grayscale and DCG landscape and a number of other different, uh, topics such as who to pay attention to in 2023. Uh, if you were on that list, uh, that prior list, who to pay attention to in 2021 and 2022, uh, it was either a very good or bad list to <laughs> be on, depending on you. who you are. Yeah, exactly. Okay, David, in addition to uh, the theses that we go over with Ryan Selkis, there's also a kind of a bonus section to this mm -hmm. episode where uh, we ended the episode, we finished, we, we hit the stop recording button, but there I, there was one question I really wanted to ask him, a question about crypto media, uh, and this news about uh, The Block, which is a mm -hmm. crypto media publication being secretly owned by SBF. So we get into some of that as well in a bonus episode that we'll provide for bankless listeners. But apart from that, what else should folks be uh, aware of going into this episode? Yeah, it's just a, a broad trend download. So it moves pretty fast. Ryan's got some very broad takes. And because of how ingrained in this industry he is, he can connect so many different parts of the industry to other parts of the industry. And that's really the way to get a broad snapshot of what the hell is the state of crypto at the end of 2022 and moving forward into 2023. We talk about CZ and Brian as the last and remaining exchange leaders. We talk about Anatoly and the state of the Solana ecosystem. We go through the anatomy of a crypto credit crisis uh, and Selkis calls the grayscale trade crypto's widow maker. There's just so many topics to pay attention to. And just as you are listening to this listener, remember that all of these topics in crypto hyper thread with each other. It, it, we are one industry We are this is one spot. And so the trends in C5 relate to the trends in D5 relate to the trends in NFTs. So as you are paying attention to this, make sure to connect all of the dots to all the other dots that we are talking about as we go through this podcast. All right, guys, we're going to get right to our episode with Ryan Selkis. But before we do, we want to tell you about these tools to help you go bankless. Bankless Nation, we have Ryan Selkis on the episode today, and we're diving into his crypto theses for 2023. Super excited to get into these topics. I've been reading these since forever, since I've been in crypto, uh, always jam-packed full of insight information. How many pages is this one, Ryan? Uh, this one's a beast. I think it's uh, 168, but that includes the, you know, the cover and the disclaimers and, you know, all, all the other garbage. So 168 pages That's of what crypto the information. Says. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Anyway, welcome to Bankless. It's great to have you on again. Um, okay, a word for the year. David and I were, were talking about this, uh, but like you got 168 pages, a lot of words. If you were to summarize 2022 and give it a word, what word would you give it? What's something that pops into mind right now? Well, I think that depends if you're looking forward or looking backwards. I think if you're if you're looking at the year in review, it's it's let's pretty look easy. backwards. 2022. What word? Pain. 
<laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. Mi- 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 full, full Mr. T meme, right? Pain. Um, I think if you're looking forward, um, I don't want to call it relief, but I, I think optimism is, is a pretty good starting point. Um, and we'll get into that. I, I think the big thing that happened this year is the core crypto thesis remains unchanged over the next 10 years. Um, one thing that did slow pretty significantly is, is you know, the institutionalization or the, the Wall Streetification of crypto. Um, and that's got its, its you know, benefits and, and, and its drawbacks. But um, I think uh, most of the damage, most of the pain this year was certainly uh, in the latter camp versus the, the true decentralization uh, and, and, and you know, some of those core projects that, uh, that are going to be the backbone for this economy. David, I like that word. We were de- debating some words back and forth. Uh, contagion, you said. Mm-hmm. Yield was another. Hubris, mm-hmm. uh, shortcuts. But I think pain, that gets right to the point. My yeah. God, 2022 is painful. It's, it's, a, it's a good word because I think it's, you know, uh, obviously from the economics of it, it's been a, a pretty disastrous year for investors. But, um, you know, I remember listening to your, your podcast when, when this turmoil was really uh hitting its peak and uh and just listening to david like i could feel i could feel some of that um mm-hmm. of like we've been building here for so long and it's just so fucking disappointing right what's yes. going on right it's like the, the 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 parent like being you know disappointed not mad uh yeah. we were past the anger phase at one point and um and i think everybody you know had some type of moment like that uh, of dejection in the fall um, and you know, once reality settles in and you realize, okay, this is, you know, just a, another con artist, just like anyone else, uh, the industry is, is going to be just fine. And, and, you know, the, the core remains, then you can, you can get to rebuilding and, and have some optimism for the new year. Ryan, uh, Mr. Selkis, uh, one of the reasons why I like these crypto theses at the end of the year is that it's such a cohesive and comprehensive snapshot of where we are in time. Uh, it's a moment to reflect. It's a moment to look back on 2022, uh, and to take, to make informed takes as to what happens in 2022 and how is it going to determine what 2023 is like. And so you've created a number of different overarching themes. Uh, and so looking at the table of contents, I'll just kind of just like read out the themes, uh, the top 10 narratives and investment themes, top 10 people to watch, top 10 trends in CFI, top 10 trends in policy, Bitcoin and crypto dollars, top 10 Ethereum and layer one trends. Uh, and then it continues into the second page, top 10 trends in DeFi, top 10 trends in NFTs and decentralized social, top 10 trends in DAOs and Web3, and then, of course, some bonus content as well. Uh, and so uh, I, I think uh, we're definitely going to be touching on the SBF contagion and all of the content that Bankless listeners and everyone in crypto space has uh, hammered, gotten hammered into their heads over the last few months. But I think what we also want to do is kind of get back to our roots. Let's talk about the trends in DeFi. Let's talk about the trends in NFTs. And so using the, your theses for 2023 and beyond, uh, I think we should just get back to some of the basics of to what is at the very root of this industry using some of the, uh, the, the trends that you've identified here. So to start off this conversation going at the, from the top, top 10 narratives and investment themes. There's two sections I wanted to pull out. Uh, you open the section with winter is here. 
it's time to build. And then also a section crypto is still inevitable. And I, I actually remember, I think almost every one of your thesis documents has a section like this, which is the crypto is inevitable section. Uh, and it's just a nice refresher to remind ourselves that, yo, this technology is coming to steamroll over the world. It's different now because of what's happened in the last year. So Ryan, while you were writing this section about why crypto is still inevitable, what was different this year that really bolstered your confidence to be, be able to once again say that crypto is still inevitable? Inevitable. Why is, after all of 2022, why is crypto still inevitable to you? Well, I think my favorite slide uh, that, that we've made as, as a company is, is is this one that's in the deck uh, or, or in the presentation in that section, uh, which which really lays it out in full detail. And, and uh, it basically outlines uh, three core drivers, um, which is, uh, you know, generation change. You know, we kind of evolve, you know, one year at a time uh, to a more digitally native generation. Um, the second is just the in, the influx of talent that we've seen this cycle. And the level of talent is, you know, at a, a significantly, you know, a higher mark than we've seen in any cycle previous in, in terms of business talent, legal, technical. And then there's just dry powder, right? Like real dollars um, that are on these balance sheets for, for different projects, whether it's infrastructure, um, you know, related companies, or whether you're talking about the projects themselves and their treasuries. That wasn't the case last time around, right? Like a lot of these ICOs, they raise in ETH, they crash in ETH. Or they raised and, and had these big kind of native token treasuries, but they didn't really have much dry powder, and so uh, you know a bunch of projects you know fell by the wayside. Um, and then more than anything, you've got um, a, a number of uh, stepwise you know uh, uh, you know upticks in, in in innovation and like zero to one progress in DeFi, in NFTs, in DAOs, layer two uh, kind of scaling the Ethereum merge. Um, another cycle of you know Bitcoin kind of proving its its you know, bona fides as as a, uh, a a very censorship resistant digital commodity that can be a form of money for people and and you know uh, that that need a store of value that they can you know secure in their head and, and move across borders with um, and then stable coins which continue to have record months month over month right so um, both the kind of derivatives that sit on top of of crypto rails and then many of the crypto primitives themselves. Um, have just continued to see, you know, pr- pretty tremendous growth cycle over cycle. And even though the dollar, you know, values are down and now some of the volumes are down, it's still a higher low versus the previous cycle, number one. And number two, there's sturdier foundations uh, because of the capital talent and and just, you know, compounding growth of open source. So um, it's... Um, it's, I guess it's like a crypto twist on, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos' quip on on the stock market. And I think, you know, Bezos, Warren Buffett, you know, maybe it's a, a, a few folks you can attribute this to about the, the market being, you know, a, a voting machine versus a weighing station, right? In the long term versus the short term, they're two different things. And, um, and we're certainly seeing a lot of people vote uh, for the exit uh, right now. But the weight of crypto is still getting heavier and heavier. Right. And, and I don't think that, that that's going to change. It's going to be very difficult to displace. Um, so that's one thing that I come back to. And, and for someone that's been through multiple cycles, it's somewhat easier to feel a little bit of relief uh, right now uh, because you almost feel like the air is near fully out of the balloon and you can kind of get back to, OK, where now that the tide is, is kind of washed out, you, you see you know not only who's swimming naked, but where all the dead bodies are. And 
and now you know, you know what, what was real and, and what is going to have some staying power that you can build around for the next cycle. And we've seen that in 2013 and 2014, in 2017 and 2018, and we're going to see it again in, in 21, 22. Um, so I, I think you know, that's you know, glass half full, uh, I think, a thing that makes you know, crypto um, pretty powerful. And on that note of looking backwards as to some of the things that we've said previously in previous market cycles, I just wanted to pull out this quote from the surviving winter redo, redux. Uh, and uh, uh, you were citing yourself that you had written at the top of the bull market. I just want to pull this out here. In addition to eating big paper or real losses, you'll see people having breakdowns, go bankrupt due to over leverage or poor tax planning, quit otherwise promising projects, turn nasty, depressed or apathetic and generally lose sight of the longer-term potential of crypto. At the same time, the grassroots crypto herd will thin out because it's tougher to wage war when you've lost 90% of your savings and need to find a real job. This was actually not a part of your thesis document. This was a uh, you citing an earlier thing that you wrote at this top of the bull market. And then you continue in, your, in this thesis for 2023, and you ask the reader, do you still believe? If you're reading this report, there's a good chance that you do, but are now wondering how to best navigate a prolonged winter. The answer is as simple as it is challenging and unglamorous. Build. In many respects, it's easier to build in bear markets than bull markets. There are fewer distractions. Real product market fit becomes easier to identify without the noise of a token and the weak and flaky contributors wash out of the market. Ryan, I can tell from uh, this section in this uh, in this document and just knowing you, uh, bear markets excite you. Uh, and maybe you could uh, pass <clears throat> a little bit of that excitement on to the listener. Why should they get excited to build during a bear market? And why is this just another part of the crypto cycles that that uh, people that have seen a thing or two like you uh, just know what's up? Well, I, I would phrase it slightly differently. I'd say the um, uh, the slope of enlightenment excites me. Right? I, I don't I don't take any joy uh, mm-hmm. in seeing my personal net worth go down or seeing people get blown up or you know all, all the investors. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm not I'm not like some of these Twitter space hosts, right? That are are just like you know doom porning uh, the yeah, just shamelessly and and mm-hmm. and you know kind of uh, capitalizing on the situation. I think. Um, I, I think it's uh, it's you know somewhat disgusting uh, for for people to get you know some some pleasure out of this. Um, so I certainly wouldn't say that like that part of the bear market, the steep decline, right? This this mm-hmm. you know catastrophe that we've had this year is enjoyable. But when you do find a bottom, it's not going to be a V-shaped recovery, and some people are going to get apathetic and they'll wash out. But for the rest of us, that's when it feels like okay, we're we're on more stable ground. All of the folks that we didn't really, you know, think we're going to be here for the long term have washed out. Um, and you know, the people that we were, you know, jiving with and, and, and that we thought were going to be um, long term builders and, and contributors and, and, you know, we're doing things for the right reasons and, and really excited about them for the right reasons. They're still here. And by the way, now they're getting a lot more oxygen and attention. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's, I think, the exciting part. And um, and, and if you kind of come in with that mindset, there's plenty of problems to solve uh, within the industry. And every single cycle, the biggest problems from the previous cycle tend to be solved. And the solutions uh, providers uh, end up having the next unicorns uh, in, in the cycle that ensues. So um, it's, uh, it's, it's a pretty good entrepreneurial feedback loop, actually, if you're looking for ideas and, and if you're you know, actually committed to the long term. 
I think that's worth uh, just emphasizing is that this product feedback cycle and being able to build inside of a bear market where you have so much signal is unique. It's a unique opportunity during the parts of uh, the cycles. Uh, during the, You don't get that in the manic part of the cycle. What you do get in the bear market is uh, a lot of signal for product builders to understand that they are actually building something inherently useful and to also take some of the idealized features of what made a mania a mania nfts for example and actually execute on that while shedding some of the uh the short-term uh things that only actually last in the in the peak of a bull market all right so selkis um 10 people to watch all right we're we're in the in the bear market in this build uh season of course um who should we be watching right now i i noticed uh one of your picks were, were two exchange operators uh cz and Brian Armstrong, and uh, you tied them. They're tied for the number one leaders of the two largest central exchanges left. The central exchanges left, uh, can you believe SBF would have been on this list a year ago, probably now completely gone, but Coinbase and Binance. So why these two? Why are they two individuals uh, to watch, particularly coming out of this year? Well, it's interesting you say that because last year in the report, I did refer to Coinbase, Binance, and, and FTX as the three biggest exchanges to watch. Maybe. Um, so, <laughs> we were watching. We were definitely watching for uh, for all the wrong reasons. Um, I think, uh, you know, looking backwards, FTX probably had the most hype, institutional momentum, and, and political momentum out of the three. That's obviously come crashing down and been exposed to be a house of cards. The other two remain, but the other two are front and center for, I would argue, the right reasons, and that's because of their volumes uh, and, and trading dominance being Binance, and then their custody um, uh, market share being Coinbase, right? Because you know, Coinbase is a mega custodian in its own right, um, but it also custodies the Grayscale uh, Trust. So you know, it has 11% um of all the Bitcoin in circulation, you know, 16% of all the ETH, you know, 11% of, of maybe the other, uh, you know, camp of, of, uh, cryptos. So it is, um, just a massive, uh, market participant, which everybody knows, but just to put that in perspective, you know, you are talking about, um, 10% of the economy, uh, in, in crypto essentially is, is, is safeguarded by Coinbase. So, um, how those two CEOs, you know, kind of navigate the next couple of years, I think is going to be, you know, uh, pretty critical. Um, and for CZ, uh, I think the challenges are, are really going to be headline risk related and, and regulatory and legal in nature. Um, I think that there's a lot of uh, fear, uncertainty, doubt around Binance right now. We've seen this in the last couple of weeks uh, really pick up steam. And my um, my nuanced take of, of whether that's good or bad is um, I think it's overblown. I think the, the FUD is overblown, but I think it's good if – it reduces that market share um, and it, it uh, disperses some of that trading volume because um, it is, I think, unhealthy for the industry to have that much reliance on, on your kind of one centralized exchange. Um, and I would actually argue that for Binance, they will be healthier if there are several other, you know, very large competitors that are, are kind of going back and forth with them in terms of the volume lead. Um, with Coinbase, you know, it's somewhat similar, um, but I think they're fate and, and really their, their success is going to hinge um, on the U.S. regulatory situation and, um, and how effectively you know, they're able to 
uh, thread the needle the next couple of years, assuming that we don't get comprehensive legislation. I don't expect that we're going to get comprehensive oversight uh, legislation, you know, basically until we, we have a new administration. Um, and we can maybe get into that in the policy section. The next uh, character that we wanted to pull out of this section is that that was number one, number one tied for first with CZ and Brian Armstrong. I want to skip over to number five, Anatoly Yakovenko. And the, the quote that I really liked here was that I saw firsthand how hard it was to kill Anatoly and his team in the last bear market. In my eyes, that's the leading predictor of long-term success in crypto. As such, I'd expect the Solana core team and ecosystem to persevere once again, but can they ascend to new heights? Ryan Selkis, could you unpack a little bit as to how and and why you put Anatoly and Solana as the number five person to watch in 2023? I think that they were the largest alts. They were or are the largest alts L1 community that isn't EVM compatible, right? Mm. Um, so in terms of other you know base layer blockchains um, that are using a fundamentally different design than Ethereum, um, I think uh, Solana has been the project to watch, and and it certainly attracted, you know, arguably the the second most you know, developer attention outside of Ethereum. Um, it had a, a an absolutely you know crazy parabolic run in, in 2021, but there's also been quite a bit of innovation um, uh, around that community. And interestingly, they've made a big um, effort in mobile. Right, I, I think what they're doing with the Solana phone and and the Solana mobile stack um, is. A differentiator, and and it is you know uh, pretty pretty interesting uh, in attracting developer talent. If if you're excited about you know, bringing like crypto um, to the masses, you know through through you know, uh, handheld devices, because you can't necessarily trust Apple and Android are, are going to um, let those apps through. So I think for those reasons, it is um, in a league of its own in, in some respects. You can look at where it stands from a market cap ranking now, and it's obviously you know slid. Uh, pretty significantly, especially given the, um, the the size of stake that FTX had, um, a lot of those early investors, um, you know, there there could be some some overhang, some some sell side pressure that's still kind of embedded in that um, in that ecosystem. When you're just talking about the token, but when you're talking about the developers and the tech, um, I would say that they are you know the the leading contender for the second crypto operating system, if you will. Um, uh, Cosmos being you know, kind of similarly situated, uh, maybe maybe slightly behind, um, and uh, and traditionally that's what you've seen in mobile, in the browser wars, in PC operating systems. You've seen you know two major players and you know this duopoly, uh, and then a, basically you know a, a pretty steep order of magnitude drop off for the the other players after that. Um, so will they be able to consolidate some of that market ownership around this second you know uh, alt L1 stack? So on this uh, people to watch thing, right? Um, what, what what's interesting is how quickly people in this industry can go from like hero to villain, right? And you know, um, so last year uh, on your list, Do Kwan actually made number ten. Uh, and these are people to watch. These are not necessarily people that mm-hmm. uh, I know you are saying like. Yeah, I don't know idolize. if people want to be on my. I don't. I don't know if people want it's to be on this list. Not necessarily a good this thing. Is not, yeah, this is like the SI curse or the Madden curse. I feel. But like. also, but but um, but but also, um, you know, Sam uh, was on it two years ago. Barry was Sam, on it two years ago. Suzu, Kyle Samani. <laughs> what, what, what do you make of this? Right? It's like it's just this whole people to watch. There, there's an element of yes, I totally agree. Brian Armstrong and CZ are people to watch. We want to understand kind of what they're saying, and also 
a major mistake I feel like we've made this this um, uh, bull cycle is we paid too much attention to these demagogues and to these mm-hmm. you know Icarus hubris types of individual individuals who who kind of rallied uh, uh, rallied you know populist messages and <clears throat> and you know Twitter armies all of these things. Um, so I, I agree that we want to watch people, but also like what what do you make of that dimension? Should we? be not watching people should like the actual people to be watched should, should it just be the protocols or what is this interplay between you know people and, and code and the tech and how much this industry is led by leaders versus um how much we want it to be in the hands of individuals and and completely decentralized it's just a mm-hmm. thought for you because like it's so interesting to see how quickly in this space people you thought were pinnacle right i mean sbf coming into 2022 um this guy was unstoppable this guy was somebody that Brian Armstrong, CZ, could not stop. And now where is he? He's literally in jail as we're recording this. How the mighty fall so quickly. What are your reflections on that? Well, don't do meth um, uh, <laughs> is, is number one. Um, and, and the other uh, um, uh, or whatever amphetamine he, he was on. I don't, I don't want to get sued for, for mislabeling the drug he was on. But um, well, it, it's it's interesting. So I have a couple I have a couple of thoughts here. One, um, if you're talking about relatively static tech or or, or static ecosystems, um, and I know the the Bitcoin community is going to skewer me for this, but um, the, then you don't need leaders uh, as much, right? Then it is much more community driven. Um, I think you know Satoshi was able to disappear, and Bitcoin is is operating just fine, and it has had some major upgrades over the years, but it has not truly had a leader. You know, since he disappeared, right? Um, Ethereum, as decentralized as the community is, Vitalik is still the figurehead and the leader and the, the person that people look to. He's, he's kind of the culture, you know, uh, standard setter for for that community, and still sets the vision in, in large part. Um, and uh, I think, you know, when you when you look at you know people to watch is is you know pretty much shorthand for you know uh, what does that person represent? Right. Um, in, in Brian and CZ's case this year, it's like, OK, the two uh, exchange operators that have the biggest, you know, targets on their back um, and, and they're holding the, the greatest weight of the industry on their shoulders. Right. So I think thematically they fit as like the people to watch as the canaries in the coal mine. Um, but I, I think looking backwards at, at like who's who's risen and, and who's fallen, um, it, it is, I think, good to. Uh, draw lessons from history, right? So, you know, SBF was on the list. Um, Doquan was on the list <clears throat> in, in prior years. Um, Suzu was on the list. But they flew too close to the sun and, and they overextended or, or got greedy or, or made some catastrophic error in judgment or, you know, in, 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 you know, in, in some way, shape, or form. Judgment, you know, ethics or business or otherwise. Um, there are other people that have been hit hard, but it's just because the market corrected viciously, right? You, so you mentioned Kyle, um, you know, CMS Holdings. You know, they, they were they were in that same category as Suzu. Uh, look, I'm sure they like us probably lost a lot of money this year, but they didn't get extinguished, right? Because they they weren't over levered and um, and and they're still operating. I'm sure they're going to get through this cycle and 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 still be here for the long term. Um, so it's interesting to to kind of draw lessons from like, okay, who who flamed out spectacularly versus who was just at such a high that they basically had nowhere to go but correct in the next year? Those people I don't really think are targets for dunks. The ones that 
were on a pedestal, had everything, the world in their hands, and then got knocked off from their own hubris, big difference, right? Fair, fair game. And, and I think it's good that we have those case studies you know, each cycle so that, you know, people can point to priors and say, you know, this person is reminding me I'm, I'm, I'm pattern matching a little bit too much with this new person that looks and feels a lot like Mark Carpellis did or looks and feels a lot like SBF did or Doquan did or, or you know, whatever. And, um, uh, and we're, but because our history is speed run, right? We don't even need to go to the outside world for, for examples. Um, we can, usually there's, there's like a, a crypto equivalent that people can tie back to. I'd really, Super. another, another person, by the way, I'd really love to get your thoughts on later in the show is Barry Silbert because he's, he's sort of somewhere that's not maybe somewhat in the middle of these things. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, well, I'm and, not, I'm not going to comment on him in particular, uh, for, for different reasons, but I'll, I'll comment on, on the situation at DCG. Well, let's definitely get to that later, but David, you well, want to keep us moving. That actually is exactly where we are going next because, ah, okay. uh, the next section here is top 10 trends in CFI and what was 2022 other than contagion across CFI lending desks? Uh, and the, Ryan, uh, Selkis, you, uh, the first section that you bring up is uh, called anatomy of a crypto credit crisis. And it's got this great graphic that I'll show on screen here in a second. The quote that I really liked that you opened with is, the grayscale trade, the GBTC trade, we've talked about this a little bit on Bankless. The grayscale trade, aka crypto's widowmaker, was integral in helping create much of the crypto contagion we saw this year. Starting with grayscale and GBTC, can you walk us through this flowchart that you've uh, put into your thesis doc that we're also looking at on screen? Uh, can you walk us through this autopsy? Like what what happened in 2022? Well, I'll, I'll start with the punchline, which is this is all the SEC's fault, and I truly mean that. But, um, but uh, so basically, Grayscale came public and, and offered these trust products, um, was able to raise money from accredited investors. Those accredited investors could create shares of GBTC by sending Grayscale Bitcoin. And um, they took those shares public through something called Rule 144. And, and, it's kind of like a side door ETF. With an ETF, you can create and redeem baskets of shares daily, right? So these synthetic instruments, these shares, are going to map basically one-to-one with whatever the value of the Bitcoin is that's in the trusts. Through Rule 144, you had this bifurcation of the market where accredited investors can create shares, but then they have to wait six months, and then they can sell them, and that's when retail investors can get their hands on them. For a while, there was more demand than supply, for the shares because people wanted them in their 401ks or there just wasn't really public market access to, to Bitcoin exposure um, for a long time. And so, you know, for years you had a 10, 20, 30, 50% premium at times on GBTC shares versus the underlying value. Some funds, including Three Arrows Capital and BlockFi saw that and started to think, hmm, well, we can just run this trade, you know, over and over again and clip the premium every six months. And then in 2018, um, there were some, you know, the introduction of the crypto lending desks, um, and, and that included Genesis Capital, uh, which is a sister company of Grayscale and, and all under the same DCG umbrella. Um, but basically, we got into a situation in you know, 2021 where Three Arrows Capital and BlockFi borrowed, you know, or created new shares of GBTC with leverage, whether it was with uh, outside lenders or with Genesis Capital, slammed this trade. And then all of a sudden, the dis- the premium started to 
slowly collapse. And as soon as it started to come down, it fell off a cliff because uh, one of those entities or, or some of those investors that were, were hitting that trade decided to offload their entire position. And in February 2021, um, that premium uh, went from about a 25% premium to a, a 15, 20% discount in the matter of like a week. Um, so it essentially killed the trade. And, and again, it, it turned this grayscale trade, which was a profitable trade, but not arbitrage because you were taking duration risk, you know, time risk. Um, and it turned it into what we call the Widowmaker trade. At that point, 3AC and BlockFi had combined about $4 billion worth of GBTC shares. So now those levered positions are underwater versus the underlying trust assets. But again, because this isn't an ETF, the only path to liquidity is through the shares, right? It's in, in an ETF, you would be able to, if you had a discount like this persist, redeem those shares for the trust assets. That doesn't happen through Rule 144. Uh, it, it hypothetically could, but that's a longer, more detailed you know, story for uh, that's that's kind of buried in the report. But um, but the the long and short of it is now you've got these lenders um, or, or these these borrowers in size that borrowed a ton of money to create this grayscale trade. Now they're impaired to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. The only lender in the market, perhaps, that would have looked at them as somewhat creditworthy would have to be an entity that's related to Grayscale because from their perspective, Genesis Capital, it's money from one pocket to the other, right? They know that their sister company has the assets in the Grayscale Trust. They know that whether it's six months from now, five years from now, Grayscale controls the redemption mechanism. So they would be able to look a little bit more favorably upon GBTC shares now as collateral instead of the underlying Bitcoin. And so this is where the spiral started because Three Arrows Capital, um, I think BlockFi to a lesser extent, but especially 3AC began to basically just roll the trade over um, and say, you know what, we're going to just roll uh, all of this, all these underwater shares with Genesis Capital. And if you're Genesis Capital, you're like, this is this is great business because you know if you charge in 3AC 5% a year on $2 billion dollars, uh, and shares, yeah, that's a good line of business. And that's basically an annuity. It's like $100 million a year guaranteed and captive as long as that discount persists, unless and until like an ETF is approved and that, that window would close. So it created this really kind of you know uh, weird dynamic um, in the market. And I think it was one of the first things that, that really set off um, some risk for, uh, for 3AC. Now, having said all that, I don't think that there's anything um, that this is really kind of a comedy of errors or just like a perfect storm, right? That, mm-hmm. that this, the sequence that happened because that by itself would not have been enough to do in three arrows capital, right? They had to make another couple of really bad, toxic, you know, synthetic bets in Lunaterra and then in Stake D Thief, um, in Q2 of this year that ultimately set them, uh, put them under. But remember, I mean, they, they were in Avalanche. They were, it seemed like they could do no wrong with all their other crypto-related trades and investments in 2021. So even that big number, $100 million uh, a year in interest, if that's what it was, right? I'm just using it as a ballpark. That would have been you know, easy to absorb in the context of, of what people thought was a $10 billion fund. Um, but you fast forward and you get to Q2 of this year, Luna collapses, it turns 3AC bad, and then the bad credit really starts to just line up like dominoes one after the other. Um, that ultimately creates um, 
uh, you know, forces Genesis to uh, reclaim or, or kind of call all the collateral, the GBTC shares that, you know, uh, 3AC had pledged as collateral in this trade. Uh, it, it, you know, ultimately still leaves a hole in the Genesis balance sheet. There's a crisis in confidence in BlockFi at the same time. There's a run on BlockFi. Uh, Voyager has a bunch of exposure uh, to uh, 3ACs. You know, some of the other lenders, you know, kind of all go under like one, one after the other after the other. And then we have a, a little bit of a breather, right? Um, so it looks like all the bad credit is washed out in Q2. But um, we come to find out months later that that wasn't quite the full story because um, we still had to deal with this backstop between Digital Currency Group and Genesis when Genesis had this billion-dollar hole blown in it from 3AC's bankruptcy. DCG absorbed the liability, and then they had an inter-company you know, company loan. And now that's you know kind of created some issues in the, in the, the aftermath of, of the FTX collapse and some withdrawal, um, uh, rapid withdrawals from Genesis on the part of their creditors. Um, that's that's created a, a run in the bank with with DCG or sorry with Genesis, which could impact both Genesis so, and so DCG. What do you think is going to happen to that, Ryan? The the DCG empire. I mean, that's kind of the mm-hmm. the last thing people are. Well, hopefully the last thing people are trying to figure out from this massive contagion event of 2022. Um, is DCG going to be able to make it like, and if so, sort of how, um, you know, people still can't, if any retail listeners listening who deposited into the Gemini earn account, they still can't withdraw their funds and that's all wrapped Mm -hmm. up into this too. Do you have any takes on uh, how this might unfold? I think it's actually pretty promising that we haven't seen any bankruptcy filings or proceedings or, or, or anything like that uh, in the, the last few weeks. It, you know, we're outside of uh, the 30-day window um, that's kind of standard in, in some kind of cure periods um, for, you know, depending on the, the, the lender. You don't know what the specific agreements were between, you know, Genesis and its creditors or you know, DCG and Genesis. Like, all that's a little bit of a black box. So, um, you know, we'd run some analyses just based on um, public information on, on you know, DCG and Grayscale. And then what we knew about uh, the, uh, the the Genesis fundraising needs, and um, and and basically you come out to a situation where you know DCG could either recapitalize the business, but at you know a ninety percent reduction in in equity value versus where they raised money last year, um, or um, you reach a, a, a resolution with the Genesis creditors directly. And at this point. Um, given the market softness and, and you know, how multiples are coming down and, and how people have cooled on crypto and this being a distressed situation, I think you know, the path to a resolution here uh, probably swings on uh, whether the creditors are able to make a, a good offer and there's, there's able to, uh, they're able to come to a resolution where you know, Genesis creditors um, take some partial liquidity today and then maybe roll some of their exposure into DCG or um, otherwise have, you know, kind of upside and, 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 you know, can be made whole through the other, um, uh, healthy businesses and, and healthy assets that are, are, you know, under the DCG umbrella. So you think they're going to make it? You think the probability is that, you know, they, they, they could make it through this? I don't want to speculate. I'll, so I'll be, I'll, I'll be coy and I'll say 50, 50. I think it's a coin flip. I, you know, the, the issue is, um, remember, you know, if, Right now, DCG has two different options. One, you try your hand in court and try to limit the liability that you have with this bad subsidiary, and you basically let them go bankrupt. Um, 
The other, uh, so that's kind of like the hardball play. It's very risky because DCG was itself a borrower from Genesis. So they, you know, are one step removed from owing all of these creditors, you know, capital. Mm-hmm. Um, the other is the, there's you know, some resolution with the creditors. And, and so it's a little bit of a game of chicken, chess, whatever you want to call it. Um, but it, it, it's not as if a resolution with creditors is a panacea for DCG because it's still going to create a new, you know, massive either liability or preferred, you know, uh, you know, instrument at the, at the holding company level that, you know, could hypothetically wipe out a good chunk of equity value if things go sideways in the next few years for, for DCG. So I think that answers uh, a big question that I kind of had, which was, is this whole potential DCG bankruptcy going to overhang the crypto industry kind of in the same way that Mt. Gox did for so long and in, in a way still does. And from what I'm, I'm the tone I'm hearing from you is that it's not really going to overhang all that much. Maybe there's some, some bad stuff, but uh, for, for like overhanging self pressure, well, not that much. I, I, uh, I think that there are some similarities in the reaction, not in the structure, right? Like these okay. are totally, totally different, you know, stories. Mm-hmm. But in, in terms of the the damage it has done, um, potentially in the worst case scenarios of this resolution, are somewhat similar to the the worst case reactions that we saw after Malcox, right? Like Malcox was not, um, it actually wasn't that damaging at the time because from a, a market pressure standpoint, because the funds had been slowly led away over the course of years, right? Mm. Um, and people just didn't know that the funds weren't there. So it was a disaster for everyone that, that lost money, right? But but um, it was not necessarily like uh, you know, a situation where you just saw you know, uh, hundreds of millions uh, of, of Bitcoin hit the market and, and kind of instantly become sellable because they were hacked. Um, with this situation, and, and then in the aftermath of Mt. Gox, we got the bit license and we got you know, a bunch of jurisdictions become hostile to, to crypto and, and you know, took took quite a bit of time um, for, uh, for for us to make progress after that. Um, I think with uh, with the DCG Genesis situation, you know, one of the one of the issues that we're confronting with this, and one of the reasons I think we need like a good positive resolution, is um, you've got Gemini as one of the primary creditors. Gemini earned customers are owed about nine hundred million dollars. So now you're pulling in U.S. retail. There's another similar earn-like program that I think was just reported on last week through a, a, a European exchange, BitVavo, um, where they have $300 million in a similar earn-like program. So that could potentially pull in the European regulators, right? And, um, you know, we're running out of bodies right now. <laughs> like warm bodies and leaders in the industry. And, you know, DCG is extremely well-connected. Con- They've got, you know, Larry Summers is an advisor. They've got Glenn Hutchins, who's golfing buddies with Obama, you know, on, on their board. Um, and, uh, and, and then, you know, Gemini, you know, is, is one of the best regulated, you know, uh, uh, exchanges and custodians uh, in the U.S. So you're starting to lose just like one too many chess pieces on the chessboard in terms of like the adults in the room if you can't figure out if, if there can't be some, you know, kind of adequate resolution here. So I don't think about it as as economically damaging in terms of like there's more credit contagion risk still in the market. I think that's probably mostly washed out. But now we're at the part of the cycle where, you know, the black eyes are going to be potentially permanent in nature if they get encoded into law. And I think that's the biggest concern right now and the reason everybody should be rooting for some amicable resolution here. Okay, so I guess so this is the top uh, trends in DeFi. Just to gift gift drop. Like C5. Your- 
with CFI, excuse me, the top um, trends in CFI. And just to wrap this in a bow, you called the grayscale trade the widowmaker, but you also said this was all the SEC's fault, all Gary Gensler's fault. Could Gary have really waved a magic wand and just convert that GBTC thing into an ETF and this whole arbitrage mess crap, all the fallout would have been solved? I know that doesn't help FTX necessarily and all of the other contagion, but uh, would that have made the Widowmaker not make any widows? If we had a spot ETF, none of this would have happened. None of it. Wait, yeah, wait, what do you mean none of it? Three hours capital <laughs> wouldn't have over leveraged. Sam Bankman Fried would have, have been a fraud or like what specifically well, I mean, wouldn't have happened? I, well, I mean, think about the impairment that 3AC had, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you're, you're talking about um, mid nine figures worth of impairment um, plus all of the interest payment that they had um, as they had to continue to borrow against these shares uh, over the course of the last year. So this was a significant, you know, kind of dead weight loss for them. Um, but you know, the flip side is, yeah, I'm sure they made money, money on it in the beginning. Um, the fact remains that, uh, this, this asset being publicly tradable, I mean, at its peak, it was a $40 billion trust, right. Um, that the retail investors are, are, are able to, uh, to invest in. And it's just become like hot potato collateral for, for, you know, some of many of, of the entities that have blown up or faced significant distress this year. And at the end of the day, who's holding the bag? It's a bunch of folks that are holding GBTC, you know, in their retirement accounts, right? There's you, almost a million GBTC shareholders that would benefit from the conversion to an ETF, which is the equivalent of a snap of the fingers of the SEC. It just has to do with with treating spot ETFs the same way that they treat these, you know, insane, you know, CFTC derived derivative uh, ETF, these futures ETFs that are garbage. Do you think? Do you think, Ryan, that like? Uh, Gensler looked at this and was just like, you know, I don't know, evil villain in kind of an armchair somewhere and just like, let them burn. That's what crypto gets. Like, I could fix this, but I won't. Is it is it that sort of nefariousness going on here? Do you think he really has it in for the industry or is this all bureaucracy and, you know, just well, couldn't get uh, to me, the ETF? I'll, I'll, I'll give the, the, the like, you know, conniving version uh, and then the... Um, uh, and then from like the regular, the, the most charitable version, I guess, for, for someone like Jerry Gensler, the most charitable version is um, we are not going to break policy, which is we don't have oversight of the exchanges that are, are you know, trading these you know, spot instruments. And we're certainly not going to reward bad behavior. Right. So just because this trade existed and it created a bunch of problems like that is that is not our doing. Right. This was a loophole that was exploited. You've made your, you know, you've made your bed now lay in it. Um, that's, I think, you know, the one hand and, and essentially it's just default no. Um, the other is um, that, you know, this, this you know, setback and, and this continued pain is, is you know, arguably a good thing because it shows, uh, it, it backs their position and it, it just shows um, the other, you know, policymakers that they're trying to convince, look, this is how unwieldy this crypto market is. We need full oversight of all of the centralized players. And these things are either securities or having an impact on the securities market. So it makes sense to empower XYZ regulator that already has this oversight responsibility in these other adjacent areas with, with the same power so we can clean this up. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, like I don't really see there being a resolution anytime soon. Um, 
But um, now you've got a situation where you know, GBTC shareholders are, are 50, 50% underwater. Um, and the only people that win um, are, you know, counterintuitively, it's, it's DCG through Grayscale, right? Because they're still making their, you know, $300 million a year on these trusts. And, um, and the SEC, because they're able to play hardball and use this as a negotiating chip for the, their long-term position. Well, I think this underhands us right into this policy conversation, the policy section. So wrapping it, uh, tying a bow on the t- 10 trends of CFI, we're going to go into the trends in crypto policy. And there's a number of sections in here all about SBF and the insider baseball. Uh, without giving too much of the juicy details away, uh, Ryan Selkis, can you kind of just like, I know you you are very involved with policy in Capitol Hill and and like that whole world. Can you kind of just like summarize this the insider baseball that was going on that we are still learning about to this day? Yeah, like what happened? Yeah, like what from that? What one for, for the real, C, What? <laughs> like yeah, what? No, seriously. Like I mean, SPF wrote that post. There's talk about yeah. DCCPA. We had him debate on Voorhees, like on, on the podcast defending that position. And eleven days later, he turns yeah. out to be. <laughs> <laughs> short 10 billion dollars like what happened well i think that's the last 20 percent of 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 the the write-up because this really started uh in in the fall i think you know even um folks within kind of dc policy circles um for a while underestimated how far the ftx team had been able to push dccpa right this um this stab it out bozeman bill and um, it, it really started to become more apparent in September. Um, we actually hosted a policy dinner uh, around Mainnet, and, and you know, it was supposed to just be you know, kind of a celebratory dinner. Look how far we've come since the infrastructure bill. We had a bunch of speakers in town that were from the policy side. So um, uh, you know, someone you know, dropped a bomb during the dinner and, and essentially said, you know, can, can we just talk about the elephant in the room? You know, uh, Sam's trying to sell out the industry and, and create a monopoly for himself. And wow. you know, it was, yeah, I mean, it, it was, it was kind of, it was, it was wild. Like it was, uh, you know, you could have heard a, a pin drop type of moment and, um, uh, but it ended up being very healthy cause you got a lot of people talking, you know, for all, for all reasons, right? Like it was, you know, it was, it was, a, a an interesting night after that. But, um, uh, in the aftermath of that, I think, you know, people kind of woke up to, you know, how close, uh, they were getting and, um, and, you know, several people, myself included, you know, started to push Sam and, um, and the FTX team to, to start being a little bit more open with, with some of the other groups, um, uh, particularly those on the DeFi side. And so, you know, there was a number of, of, you know, meetings that, uh, you know, the, the casual like armchair observer on, on, you know, Twitter is going to say, oh, it's a smoke filled room or it's this or that or the other thing. It's like, no, you had a situation where, where one entity was making enormous strides um, because of all the political investments they'd made. And, um, and a lot of people were not necessarily, you know, in, in tune. And a lot of those other people that, that you know, were, were able to get in touch and start um, uh, comparing notes with FTX after you know, this dinner and after these meetings were representatives of major DeFi projects or some of the other major trade associations um, and, uh, and, and the hope was that we were, we were going to be able to make some progress on the DeFi language in, in, in DCCPA as drafted. Then when things leaked, um, you know, all help kind of broke loose. Sam couldn't stop talking about it and the circle retightened. Um, and what I think, you know, there's, you know, there's, I'm not going to name names, but there's a couple of people in the industry that are patting themselves on the back 
for, you know, basically like, oh, it, you know, took, took down like SBF by you know, doing this or, or, you know, we, we stopped the DCCPA, um, uh, because, you know, we, we kind of blew the whistle on this and, and brought the, brought the fight to crypto Twitter. I'm telling you right now, that's nonsense. The thing that stopped the DCCPA is the FTX bankruptcy. Hmm. It was, it had nothing to do with the leak. The only thing that the leak did was tighten the circle of people that were going to contribute from that on out. And it could have been pretty damaging if this had gotten pushed through the lame duck. So we dodged a bullet. We got lucky, I think, with FTX. Um, and I'm not going to really you know, spend much time arguing counterfactuals, but um, I had a few people call me out. Uh, and so I decided to do the full postmortem since I was in some of those rooms. And uh, and that's what happened. Yeah, I so haven't now. read all of that. And I want, like, that's so interesting to <clears> me. <throat> but, but But like zooming out, was SBF really just kind of a puppeteer trying to control the, the, the strings in DC and like benefit his, his own exchange over DeFi? Was he basically pulling up the ladder um, after he'd, you know, it climbed up it, pulling it up for everyone else? Uh, was there something nefarious going on here or, you know, is that not the case? It's, it's just very tempting to look at everything yeah. he's doing now uh, under that lens and be like, wow, this guy is, you, you call them political in, you know, investments. It's, it's basically do, campaign well, donations, right? Yeah. Well, look, I, I mean, I think he was playing a game, right? And, and by the way, he was playing it very well, right? Regardless of, of you know. Just like what, a Machiavellian he, type game. Yeah, it was, it was a very Ma- Ma- Machiavellian uh, type game. I think that he was looking out for, you know, his own self-interest. But every single company that lobbies, right, or, and every single company, you know, that is, is kind of advocating for themselves on the policy side – is doing that out of self-interest, right? Now, there's operating out of self-interest, and then there's operating out of self-interest and only self-interest, right? And I think that's a difference with some of the other big crypto companies. You know, you've you've seen Brian Armstrong tweet about, um, you know, not pulling the ladder up on DeFi, right? Like, we have to protect, like, he has every incentive um, to make sure that good exchange oversight legislation gets passed because he is the incumbent. Coinbase is the incumbent. But if that's going to be at the expense of all the long-term innovation in the, in, in the industry, I think you know he he recognizes, for instance, that um, uh, that that's to the long-term detriment of his business as well, because you're talking about the growth of the industry. FTX was a little bit different because they also had this relationship with IEX, and then you know Tom Emmer has been all over this. Um, you know, you guys should listen uh, to uh, to the the interview that that you know uh, Representative Tom Emmer just did with uh, with Nick Carter and the on, on the Brink podcast. But he goes off, and I mean, he—it sounds like he wants to, you know, go after Chair Gensler hard in, in the new year. <laughs> but essentially, you know, saying, you know, okay, there's all these self dealings between this, you know, securities exchange, you know, IEX um, and FTX was, you know, were they basically lobbying for FTX to have CFTC oversight and then IEX to have a monopoly over the crypto securities market, and then these two would be joined at the hip, they'd have a de facto monopoly on the whole thing, um, and yeah, there's there's. That's definitely, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's a possibility. My point in writing this is there was not a single piece of of Sam's business that he didn't know exactly what was going on. He is extremely smart. He thought that he knew, like he he thought that he saw the entire chessboard. You know, he he seemed to have his finger on the pulse of of kind of the politics of the situation and and this particular bill. And you know, when he was in meetings with his policy team. The policy team was the supporting cast. He was the one predominantly that spoke um, wow. and kind of led the discussion. So it's not like he was kind of following the advice of like the folks in his policy team. Um, I'm sure he was, 
right? But he was also very much leading these discussions, and and he he seemed to just enjoy it. So I I find it hard to believe that you know he was uh, so detail oriented and meticulous and 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 three D chess, four D chess oriented in, in this regard, but you know somehow you know missed everything else uh, in his eight billion dollar balance sheet hole. And I remember, I, I would imagine everyone in DC is just like, who's been associated with, with him is just kind of running in the opposite direction now, trying to distance themselves. Is that, is that what's going on? Maybe distance themselves from crypto. Who knows? It's maybe some of the cloud. Yeah. I mean, we, we got like long-term damage control, right? So, mm. you know, uh, I, I think, um, the only thing that's going to help that is time. Now, the, the most important win this year on the policy side is that this, this didn't become law. The next couple of years, I think, unfortunately, are going to be a little bit of a war of attrition, right? It's going to be trench warfare, a lot of legal fights, um, warding off, you know, uh, enforcement actions and, and regulation by enforcement from the, the from the SEC in particular, but also potentially from the CFTC in some cases. And, um, you know, we might not get, you know, comprehensive legislation um, for exchanges or for like what constitutes a token versus a security or a commodity uh, until we have a new administration in place. Um, uh, mm. The one uh, exception, you know, uh, potentially, I, I think, could be in the stablecoin realm, that maybe we'll see some some positive stablecoin action. Um, there's always a chance uh, that, that something more comprehensive gets done, but with the Republicans uh, in control at the House and, and, and Democrats in control at the Senate still, uh, it, it seems, you know, more likely than not that this is going to be gridlocked, which, by the way, is probably a net positive right now versus the alternative uh, for, for you know, some of the folks that have it out for us. Certainly. Well, the idea that SBF was a leader and knew everything and was playing the board is in stark contrast to his public speaking tour after FTX no collapsed, which yeah. was, I don't know a <laughs> damn thing about my own company, which was definitely the vibe that he was trying to get off. Yeah. Ryan, we have so much more to cover. We got Bitcoin and crypto dollars, top 10 Ethereum and layer one trends, trends in DeFi, which I, if I'm reading the lines, you are calling the DeFi bottom. I got my own story to tell you about that one. We'll see, if, see how that works. Uh, Ryan, so much more to come in the second half of the show, right after we talk to some of these fantastic sponsors that help you go bank. Ryan, I want to start off the second half of the show with another quote out of the Bitcoin and crypto dollars section in your 2020 theses report. And the quote begins with, we will debate Bitcoin's role in society for as long as it is for as long as it exists. As Bitcoin grows, I don't expect the powers that be to idly stand by without a fight. As it's been for a decade, Bitcoin's best defense will continue to be its inability to be held hostage by one charismatic leader, and its volatility and boringness will deflect attention in different ways. Ryan, looking forward into 2023, how do you expect the conversation around Bitcoin to unfold? I really like this line, we will debate Bitcoin's role in society for as long as it exists. Uh, what are we going to debate in 2023? How? What's Bitcoin's role moving forward here? Well, first off, uh, I don't even remember writing that paragraph. Uh, so I'm like, I'm like partly like, you know, uh, terrified that I plagiarize it. And the other half is like, maybe I was just like writing it in like a, a Stephen King, like Bender mode. Um, but uh, yeah, I... Look, I, I think in in you know kind of going forward, um, Bitcoin has benefited greatly from its boringness, cycle to cycle, right? Like it, it's uh, you know people just have such ridiculously short memories that um, every single passing cycle, it's the same exact thing. People underestimate Bitcoin 
all the excitement's over here, all the application development is over here, you know, this, that, the other thing. And it's just block by block by block. The fees are relatively low. The community is crazy, so no one really pays attention to them. There's no <laughs> one to go, there's no one to go after, right? You know, um, in, in terms of like a figurehead, there, you know, the core developers truly are decentralized and extremely tough to like pin down for, for, you know, any type of, uh, um, you can't really put that much pressure on, on anyone. It knows exactly involved. what it wants to be when it grows up. I mean, it's it, just and, there. And it's, 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 it's a borderline miraculous tech, right? And, and I think that's going to have staying power, um, as a money. Um, and we can, you know, argue about whether Ethereum will, surpass it or or you know or bitcoin uh, bitcoin will remain number one but it will have staying power for that reason almost by itself in in a really chaotic um, global environment so you know just like we saw you know in in the last cycle i expect that people are going to you know uh, underestimate bitcoin call for the flippening maybe maybe not you know maybe this will finally be your year guys Um, (laughs) but but i yeah i i I think that if you as a country or you as a company are going to put your um, are going to think about like a uh, a currency hedge, not an inflation hedge, but a currency hedge, um, then I think um, then I think Bitcoin still remains like the first choice. And, and then Ethereum has probably moved into that number two um, mm-hmm. spot. Yeah, I, I certainly remember going through the 2017 to 2018 uh, mania. And on the end of 2018, I definitely had more respect for Bitcoin than I did at the start of 2017, that's for sure. And it's a little <laughs> bit after the chaos of a uh, collapse of crypto, of the collapse of the industry, the the appreciation for one block every 10 minutes definitely hits a little bit harder when we are down in the depths of a bear market. So I, I will give that one to you. Uh, I want to also, however, move on to the Ethereum and layer one trends. And I just have a broad conversation. Oh, wow. We're going right over all the good stuff in the Bitcoin (laughs) section. No surprise. No surprise. Well, this actually, this actually isn't even diving into the Ethereum uh, part specifically. I just, uh, from your (laughs) perspective, from the outside of the Ethereum community, uh, which Ryan, my Ryan and I find myself, ourselves very in the middle of uh, very frequently, how would you describe the landscape of smart contract chains going into 2023? Like, who are all the relevant players and who's showing strength? Uh, and with all of the Alt-Layer 1 landscape, can the entire uh, Alt-Layer 1 landscape hold a candle to Ethereum's Layer 2 ecosystem? What's your take on just a smart contract landscape in 2023? Well, I think um, you have to look at um, market cap, uh, market dynamics, and then developer activity. Um, yeah, I think you have to look at all three uh, for, for signs of strength. So, so. I know that apps don't necessarily follow price, but price is what ultimately secures these proof of stake networks, um, and uh, and that's also you know kind of an indication of of community health, right? It's it's the one barometer that you can kind of look at. You know, it's not perfect, but it's directionally correct in terms of like you know order of magnitude importance of the different ecosystems. Um, and then, you know, kind of the 1A to that is the market dynamic, right? So this would be the changes to Ethereum supply, right? And, and the new issue and schedule and the post-merge economics of Ethereum. And I think if you just look at those like that 1 and 1A, Ethereum is just so far ahead of everybody else, right? Like in a, in, in a kind of a class of its own right now as a layer one that you're really looking at, as I alluded to in the Anatoly, you know, comments in, earlier, you're looking at. Ethereum and EVM compatible chains, whether that's rollups, 
whether that's you know kind of this modularity thesis for different types of of, of uh, blockchains, um, or whether you're looking at other EVM compatible like layer ones, um, like Avalanche and, and and others that have these bridges, um, I think no matter what, uh, that is going to continue to be one of the dominant ecosystems of, and, and probably the dominant ecosystem you know for for crypto not named Bitcoin for the foreseeable future, right? Um, Everybody else is kind of playing for second, uh, especially post merge, right? I think last year, you know, when we had this conversation, um, as you know, my quip on the merge was always take the over, right? <laughs> whatever, whatever the date was, take the over. And for a while, that was money good. You, you'd make money hand over fist if you just always took the over when it came to like when people anticipated the merge would come. Um, but the fact that it came, the fact that it was that it went off without a hitch, I mean, it just miraculous, just one of the most impressive technical achievements, um, you know, of, of, you know, my, my career, my, you know, kind of professional life, um, that I've seen. And, um, and, uh, and it's, it's something that I think solidifies, you know, Ethereum, uh, for the long term and in terms of not only it's, it's, uh, the stability of the platform, but I think the, it's attractiveness to other outside developers, right? Um, because that was such a hard, problem to take on in such a, 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 a tall mountain to scale, I think um, there there should be quite a bit of confidence that like other equally tricky problems would get will get solved over time um, in, in a really thoughtful manner. So I don't under, underestimate that at all. And, and I think, um, uh, you know, just Vitalik uh, and, and the other core devs that, that you know, spent years on this just, you know, they're... They weren't the people to watch just because I didn't want to curse Vitalik. I was worried about the the SIM curse, <laughs> right? But like, so is that not that I, you know, uh, I think Anatoly could probably not have much of a worse year than this year. So I, I think you know he's he's primed it's for resurgence. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But I, I think that those guys, I mean, just the the bright spot in a really bleak year uh, for sure. So Ryan, can we just do this? All right, because we've had two cycles of the meme ETH killer, Ethereum killer. Like something is going to come kill Ethereum, right? Is that dead now? Is there? Are we going to have another ETH killer cycle, the next cycle, and oh my god, repeat this whole thing? Not to say there won't be competitors with yeah. ETH, but like killing is different. Yeah, I, I think the ETH killer cycle, like now everybody realizes it's not enough to kill ETH because the fees are high, right? Um, and you know, it's not enough to kill ETH because it's proof of work, right? Or it has this looming technical upgrade that's a bunch of smoke and mirrors and a um, and, and, you know, this mechanic, this, um, perpetual motion machine, that's the roadmap, like that, that's done, right? Like that's, that's in the rear view mirror. Now there are still some challenges that need to be, you know, tackled like the, the, the potential sensorability, um, issues around, you know, MEV and, and, and those are all on the roadmap. I, but I think that those are significantly less challenging than what we just saw, uh, in, in terms of the merge, um, so you're going to have to compete on, you know, fundamentally new use cases. So, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a, a very deep, uh, deeply technical person, but would some of these move, uh, oriented blockchains, right? The ones that spun out of the, the Facebook DM project, um, like Aptos and Sui, you know, are they going to, you know, uh, introduce some interesting applications? Is Solana, um, going to introduce, um, some interesting applications that just you know, run better, faster, cheaper, and and you just can't do them on Ethereum, maybe. Um, and then yeah, you know, the other one to keep an eye on is you know will um, the Cosmos app chain model 
ultimately attracts you know more communities, more applications uh, because of the the customizability of the app chains themselves. So DYDX, like watching that experiment the next year, um, their migration from a zk rollup to uh, to an app chain on Cosmos is is probably going to be you know, the most important project uh, for you know Ethereum killers. Uh, you know, proponents to watch because that would be one sign that maybe some of the interesting use cases and some of the really scalable um, crypto apps are actually not going to be built on Ethereum, but maybe they'll move to something like the Cosmos DAP chain uh, model. I don't know what the right answer is, um, but I would say um, those are, are you know, the three that are covered in the report in depth, um, uh, Ethereum, Cosmos, Solana, and then everything else is, you know, is, is referenced and we cover you know probably about a dozen uh, different layer ones um, uh, and and you know layer 1.5 or whatever you want to call polygon which had a pretty monstrous year in its own right um, in terms of some of its wins um, but we cover all of them on a quarterly basis so you know those those are alluded to and referenced but I only I can only write so many pages. I, I did my best, but mm-hmm. I know that there's going to be some communities that are pissed off. I already know that, like you know, fucking goon is gonna, uh, he's he's gonna DM me and be like, "You didn't cover Avalanche again," and he's like, <laughs> and just you know, whatever. I love you, goon, but you know, come on, man. I wrote 170 pages in two weeks. Give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to drill down on that app conversation because that brings us to the trends in DeFi, and there's one that I really wanted to pull out specifically because it hits home for me. And so I'll read one of the quotes here. Ethereum transaction fees are way down this year and the competitive dynamics with dApps have shifted. Uniswap, Lido, and OpenSea, the three largest Ethereum-based apps, now generate more monthly fees on a combined basis than the entire Ethereum Layer 1. Aave and Uniswap launched their protocols on various emerging networks this year, and it came quickly to dominate their segments in terms of volumes and TVL. This shows that the shelling point for most users isn't around chain-specific native versions of lending and decentralized exchanges, but of the top applications by user. Just as Binance will likely steamroll the first top domestic <laughs> Thai exchange in Thailand upon entrance into the country, Aave is also likely to dominate in whatever digital country, aka a layer one, it enters. Interesting. So, right, yeah. And so then Ryan uh, concludes this section, Mr. Selke says, why then does DeFi still sit at all-time lows versus ETH? I'm bullish on DeFi dominance versus Ethereum in 2023, absent ham-fisted new regulations. Ryan Selkis, are you calling the DeFi bottom? Is that David, what's going on? You've been saved. Selkis is coming to save your your, your calls. Yeah, I mean, but I said it once, not like you know, every, every month, three times. So. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I mean, um, I, I I think. Um, Look, I, I would, I would, I personally own both, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is is the way that I'd frame it. Um, I think um, the uh, the reason to be bullish is because of the dominance and the feed generation of some of those DeFi 1.0 apps, if you will, right? And and you know, their their ability to, I think, accrue value uh, for, for themselves and their communities long term. Um, the reason to be bearish and kind of take the under on that is. There are going to be significant regulatory headwinds still, right? Um, and and so that creates that's like a known unknown. Um, so you've you've got like those counter you know, veiling forces. Um, the reason I am uh, much more relatively bullish, maybe on DeFi than Ethereum, though, has to do with my mental model for both, right? So DeFi is you know 
about 0.1 to 0.2% of the market cap and TVL of traditional financial services. So do I think that, you know, um, uh, decentralized finances penetration in the real world is, is you know, going to be more than one, two, th- one, three thousandths or whatever of, of you know, the, uh, um, uh, the, the traditional financial system? I think the answer is yes. Um, mm. With Ethereum, it's a slightly different uh, calculation if people's mental model of Ether starts to change, right? So I made the point in here, you know, we're going to talk about the, the either ETH is money, in which case the sky's the limit, right? Or Ethereum is a platform like the cloud computing platforms or like a dis- distributed bank. Right now, its economics as a platform look a lot more like a distributed bank than they do a distributed cloud computing platform in terms of margins, in terms of sustainability, the fees and, and whatnot. And, and you know, it is a transaction fee based, you know, kind of model that, that Ethereum has, you know, if, if you kind of net out all, like all the staking rewards. So um, if you if you think about like Ethereum as like the, the, the meta decentralized bank of crypto um, and, and financial settlement platform, then, uh, you know, its ceiling might be a little bit lower than the most bullish proponents think. And DeFi's, you know, ceiling is probably significantly higher than I think a lot of people cur- currently handicap for. Um, so, uh, you know, I uh, I think uh, if, if we can get some resolution and some like sandboxes around DeFi uh, in the next couple of years in, in the U.S. and Europe, um, it, you know, we could, we could, be close uh, to the bottom here, uh, David. And, and 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 one of these days, you might just be right. So he's hoping for Ryan. This has been great. And uh, look, we couldn't cover all 168 pages of this, but we'll, we'll definitely make sure that folks have a link uh, in the show notes um, at the end. But um, we can only touch upon a few things. Is there anything that really jumps out at you from the report that you just really were like, guys, we should have talked about this? Um, tell us about, about that thing. What's, uh, what's something that you'd like to pull out for us, uh, t- toward the end of this as we begin to wrap up? Well, I'll do, uh, I'll do a, a buy sell for, uh, for NFTs, uh, and then DAOs, which are the last two sections that we didn't get to. So, uh, I, I think in like the, the NI, NFT and kind of metaverse space, um, I am, uh, I'm pretty, uh, pretty bullish on decentralized social applications and identity. And um, and pretty bearish on individual NFT projects and GameFi. GameFi, I think, is the most mm. overhyped, ridiculous trend. Oh, strong be, opinion! Wow, Interesting, yeah, an absolute okay. capital incinerator uh, for for years to come. Wow, um, Van Spencer would like a word. And I think um, <laughs> I think NF I think NFTs um, are uh, you know best thought of in aggregate versus as particular projects, right? So I think that the picks and shovels businesses around NFTs will continue to do well. But um, the point that I make in here is, you know, Bitcoin in 2013 to 2017, if if you do the digital gold versus physical gold comparison, right, you could see it's kind of steady march upwards and and, and its market share, you know, kind of capture reflected the value of Bitcoin. NFTs, I don't think the same thing is going to be true. I think that, that we will see like a 10x in the NFT market but it will be because of a 10, 20, 30x 
increase in the number in of projects and the number of the number of supplies. So, so, so you want to bet on the category, on the, like the collectibles category, rather than the beanie babies, right? Individual projects. Yeah, I, well, I, I think that's right, but I, I would also say that as a consumable primitive, right? I, I, I think it's it's really important, but I just don't think that people should be thinking necessarily about NFTs writ large as an asset class. It might be better to think about them you know, very specific niches like digital art as an asset mm. class. Mm-hmm. Um, the example that I've used is, um, is, you know, your physical wardrobe, right? You buy fresh kicks or, you know, a new suit. When you're ready to sell that thing, it's going to be 20 cents on the dollar if you're lucky. Um, and I, I think that give it to a thrift I, I, store, you know, it's basically, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Ex- exactly. Right. So, and, and, and so that's kind of the, the, the model that I have could be wrong. We'll see. I, but, but I, I don't think so. And then on the, um, uh, on the, on the, the Dow side, I'm still piper bullish on Dow's. We could do you know, a whole episode on that, but, um, uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll gloss over that. But the, um, I think the one, um, uh, you know, kind of critical area of investment next year, I expect we'll see an uptick in is, uh, is what we call DPEN, Decentralized Physical Infrastructure Networks. Um, cloud uh, infrastructure companies are about $5 trillion of market cap. You guys want to guess where DPEN is right now, if you include Filecoin, Arweave, Helium, LivePeer, some of those projects? Okay, give us the numbers again. So what what was... Um, yeah. $5 trillion for cloud. Yeah. What is the crypto equivalent? This is under, just a wild under ass five guess. billion. I'm gonna say, uh, yeah, I was gonna say under ten, but I'll go under five because that sounds uh, that sounds right. About two, about two and a half. Wow. Okay. Yep. So um, if you think about both the pressing need to decentralize our dependence on on some of these you know, big platforms and, and hardware networks, um, and just the the just enormous um, uh, revenue opportunity and the very clear unit economics here too, by the way. Um, of these projects, um, I, I'd expect that should be a, a, a good uh, kind of tailwind for the industry. The the question is, you know, how quickly will demand pick up for those decentralized networks? Because the supply side is largely figured out through token incentives, but can we continue to see good uh, kind of steep growth like we have the last few quarters, even in the teeth of the bear market, um, in in you know, usage of uh, of some of those decentralized physical infrastructure networks? So. That's a small sampling of the 95 and uh, appreciate being able to run through it with you guys. No, it's great. And maybe just to close us out, Ryan, um, can we talk about 2023? So uh, where do we go from here? You had this section uh, somewhere in the report that that talked about uh, 2023 as a time we need to get back to crypto, back to crypto in 2023. I think that's a good theme. If 2022 was pain, back to crypto is a great theme for 2023. And, and you said, you want more personal wallets for my cold, dead hands rather than exchange margin accounts, which is bad. You want more privacy. It's none of your business what I do. Then institutional adoption. We could slow that process down. And you want permissionless financial and social applications, a live and let live policy versus Ponzi economics, the frauds that we saw in 2022. So you want the real manifestations of this crypto vision, not the fakes. Um, wrap this up for us. What, what can we expect in 2023? What does back to crypto mean? Well, first off, I did a fine replace of Web3 anywhere that it accidentally slipped through the cracks in the trap. So, <laughs> so you killed uh, it? If it I, I killed it What'd with you replace it with? Crypto? Crypto. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and, uh, and I think there was one or two that slipped through the cracks in the graphics, which I'm not too happy about, but that's, that's, my, that's my fault. Um, <laughs> Wait, so we're but, putting uh, Web3 in the grave? 
Uh, I just, well, I don't, I'm not going to tell other people how to live their lives, but it's got bad juju for me. I'm not calling it Web3 anymore. Okay, just, all right. Every, 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 ever since we all said, started saying Web3, we started getting high on our own supply and believing <laughs> too many people that are full of shit. So I'm I done don't with hate it. that. I remember reading the A16Z Punk report rock. that that came out that said that Web3 polled well with people. It was the best polling a term. Yeah, and how's it polling now, David? <laughs> that, that was the absolute top of Web3. <laughs> it was down only for you about how is it polling down? All right, so mm. back to the basics, back to crypto in 2023. Um, Ryan, this is amazing. Hey, action items for you bankless listeners. Of course, you can do- go download the report. We'll include a link in the show notes. Any special instructions on how to download and access that, Ryan? Oh man, I should have the uh, I should have the link handy, but it's uh, it's going to be right on our homepage. So if you go to masari.io, it will be on our homepage when this drops live. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Guys, I hope you enjoyed this. We snuck this in before the holidays and you appreciate Ryan, you you hanging with us. All right, Ryan, here's my only regret with that conversation is uh, we forgot to talk about the block, crypto media. So I know, like I saw some of your tweets after this, my brain just about exploded earlier this month when I saw that. So ba- basically the news that SBF had a controlling secret interest the entire time in one of the the, the largest crypto media publications in our space. And here's why that hit me so hard is for so long, I've been kind of preaching like, and David too, and I know you have is the answer to our really shitty um, financial media coverage of crypto is crypto media. And here, here we are, here's this, this uh, entity who's caught up and involved in this, uh, this corruption, this SBF thing. And I look, I know it's not everyone there uh, there are tons of fantastic people at the, at the block that goes without saying who are not aware of any of this, but um, to see it kind of seep in, I don't know. My jaw hit the floor. What were what was your, what's your reaction to this? Because I wanted to talk to you about this for a while since it happened. Um, I, I feel like with anything like that, it it had to have been an extremely small group of people that knew about this, if not a group of one. Um, because stuff like this always gets out. Right. Um, and I just don't really think that, you know, there's any reason to, to suspect that the, the vast majority, if not you know, pretty much the entirety of the, the editorial and research teams of the block really had any, any idea that this was the structure. Um, I know that like, the, uh, the, the block's founder, Mike Dudas, like had, was completely blindsided by this, right? Like, you yeah. know, I think, you know, he had, he had said that, um, he thought that, um, you know, Mike McCaffrey's, you know, his source of, of funding for his buyout uh, of the company was, was just from, you know, family money. And, um, and so it seemed like this, you know, kind of took everybody's surprise and, and, and was, you know, very much an, an isolated, um, uh, group of people that, that knew about this. So, you know, in, in some respects, I think it's, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, it's tough that a good chunk of the team is, is going to be um, maligned over this or, or, you know, have their integrity called into question. I don't think that's you know, necessary. Um, and I think it just also flies in the face of their actual coverage on some of this stuff, right? Um, there are, I think, much more pernicious, uh, you know, issues with, uh, with you know, pay to play uh, within crypto media that is outside of, you know, Coindesk. Um, and the block, you know, CoinDesk, you know, broke the story that unraveled FTX and has now, you know, turned around and created Contagion and his parent company, right? So I think, um, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, CoinDesk and, and, you know, kind of the block editorial teams, um, 
are you know two of the best decrypts you know another one up there you guys obviously do do great work but in terms of like traditional like news like journalist uh you know heavy yeah, outlets we are not journalists at all <laughs> i think yeah I, I think i think those three are are you know definitely kind of pillars of uh, of the ecosystem and so you know I didn't really spend a whole lot of time in like the, the schadenfreude of it. Um, I just thought it was, you know, like another whatever can go wrong will go wrong this year because that one was more of just like an, an own goal that's going to look a lot worse than it really is, I think, in terms of like the, the outside world because I think we know some of the folks that are over the block, right? And, uh, you know, I, I would be shocked if, you know, Frankie Scoops had any idea of something like this. I mean, it, yeah. his reaction was like, you know, someone that just got Seems stabbed sincere. in the in the back and the heart, yeah. right? Um, so I think that's unfortunate and, and and maybe unfair. But I think there is a bigger question uh, in terms of should we have like an associated press of crypto, right? So something that is a, a little bit more open and that is focused on doing the journalistic grunt work, but where the information is ultimately like a public. Good. Okay. Well, let's, uh, so, so let's, behind a, let's a talk about that desk. because that's, that's very, really where my mind went. So, and, and <clears> by <throat> the way, we, we hopped right into this question with Ryan because he's totally up to speed. But for bankless listeners who aren't aware, the block, large, um, crypto journalism news, uh, institution in crypto turned out that their CEO was getting, um, loans from SBF and Alameda, um, that, that entire thing and was using that to buy up a majority stake of um of the block so in in some shadow type pseudo way sbf alameda was actually the owner of of the block uh and the question of does that taint coverage what what were the intents behind this also the ceo former ceo of the block is obviously he's he's no longer the ceo uh and owner it's also given like uh, apartments in the bahamas as as part of this as a reward so it's just some shady things anyway that's the background that we're going into but like what um what ryan can we do to not become like the legacy media. How do we make this corruption resistant? SBF won't be the last that tries to bribe out and buy out a crypto media publication. How do we develop some armor for this uh, the next time around? And and that maybe goes to the idea that you were talking about, like Associated Press. So, so dig into this. What do you think the solutions are here? I actually think this is a, a pretty good case for uh, a DAO. Uh, and, and the reason I say that is like, I ran CoinDesk for a couple of years, right? Like, so, you know, the, the acquisition and restructuring that we did at DCG, um, in, uh, in, in 2016, you know, it was, it was me that, that led that turnaround and, and like a team of six, right? Like it was like Pete Rizzo, uh, Mike McSweeney who's now over at the block, uh, and like an events team, like that, <laughs> our editorial team was down to like two people and like one, one contract, you know, uh, like, you know, uh, European that was doing the night coverage and, and helping on weekends. And, um, and so I know what controls we put in place, um, in terms of like editorial firewalls, just so that, you know, Coindesk was, was not perceived to be like, you know, just a a mouthpiece for DCG. Like we physically moved out of the office, you know, we had these like firewalls and this kind of, you know, code, code of, of conduct that's uh, that me and and Rizzo worked on and, and, you know, I didn't get in his way and, and vice versa. I stopped writing for 18 months. Like that was the only time I didn't write. Uh, basically was, was the 18 months that I actually ran CoinDesk. Um, and, uh, I think, uh, that model works if you trust me. And that is kind of besides the point, right? Like you, you shouldn't trust that, um, I was, you know, not getting calls from Barry and then funneling that, you know, in a, a conference room to Rizzo 
essentially saying like, if you write about this, you're fired, right? Like that's, um, that's something that, you know, I, I think, you know, gets taken for granted because I think, you know, Coindesk's, you know, body of work, uh, stood on its own two feet. People had a lot of confidence on like the integrity of the editorial team that we had and, and that we wouldn't do something like that. But, um, it's still a leap of faith and you can get unfairly maligned, you know, by association just because that construct exists. And I think the same is true with the situation with the block where you had a, a business focused CEO, not really in the editorial, uh, you know, function, not really in the research function, doing something totally outside of both of that, that is going to make them look bad. And now it, you know, kind of impugns the, the, the integrity of the rest of the group or, or, you know, at least the, um, the brand. Right. And so, um, if you think about what a DAO could be really good for, you know, it, it could be good for funding a sustainable operation uh, for journalism uh, that is truly independent, where the content itself is ungovernable, but the funding source is secure, right? So, you know, one of the issues that you always have is you want good news, but you never want to be the object of bad news. Um, and that can create a bunch of, you know, kind of gnarly, you know, incentive problems when it comes to, you know, running a, a commercial business. You know, I can't tell you how many folks um, on the uh, uh, on the CoinDesk side were like, we're not coming to consensus. We're not supporting you. Like, this is a garbage publication because there was a negative article about them because they did something, you know, shitty or they had some like mishap and the journalists covered it. Um, so I think there are ways to um, monetize a business like that and, and basically automate the business operations uh, of, of like a decentralized media outlet. And we might be at an interesting moment uh, in, in kind of crypto's life cycle where combination of uh, a recession, layoffs, some of these, you know, uh, kind of brand issues at, at um, let's forget the brand issues, some of the change of control issues that might exist at both the block and Coindesk since the block is probably going to have to restructure based on McCaffrey's ownership. Coindesk is rumored to be on the block because of DCG's other issues that it's, it's, uh, it's other subsidiaries. So you might have a perfect storm where there's going to be a lot of talent that is potentially looking to hit the market. Could you spin up almost like a constitution DAO, but for funding sustainable like crypto journalism and then organize a business unit, just like you do, like you have a, a centralized like editorial desk in, in crypto, could you have like kind of a hub and spoke model where you have a centralized editorial desk and then like a freelance kind of DAO model, kind of like what you guys have done with Bankless DAO um, as some of the, the kind of specialist contributors? Um, and I think if it's ever going to happen, like it's, it's probably going to happen soon. So, you know, maybe you guys take it up uh, and then, you know, just, oh just my gosh. Shoot, 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 shoot me a tip if it works. <laughs> I was going to ask uh, you I'll, to do I'll it. Commit. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, okay, well, I'm probably, you know, I, I wink, wink. I, I don't want to, I don't want to get in trouble because my team's like, you have too many ideas. We yeah. Don't have people. I, I hear you. Um, and so we have, and we have to focus. So, um, uh, but I, I do think it's really interesting. The other thing, uh, the other thing that I think is really interesting about this idea at this point in time is I think the economics of the journalism business um, have been total dog shit for forever. Um, and that could potentially get flipped on its head with things like GBT3 um, in the coming years. And the reason I say that is with more automation of the writing process, you're still going to need the fact checkers and the architects of these stories and like the investigators, right? So you, even though you can do the write-ups, it's like a scientist, right? Like doing the write-up is the easiest part. You got to design the experiment. You got to get all the controls right. 
You got to, you know, basically set everything up. And then, you know, if the experiment is well constructed, then you read out the results and then the write up kind of, that's the easiest part is just explaining what you did. But the, the concoction, building everything itself, that's the difficult part. And I think, um, you know, with something like GBT3, if you started recording all of your interviews, right, or you started like just inputting all of your raw notes uh, in, into, you know, a, 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 an NLP engine, and um, and then more importantly, you had a trove of historical data and historical stories and historical notes that your entire desk had done. Now that model gets more efficient and smarter over time and can make many more lateral connections and maybe break stories like FTX far sooner because that model would say, okay, we're looking at all the market cap info for these assets over here. We know that Alameda was doing these investments. We know that the market corrected here. We know that this press release went out then. We know what FTX's volumes were. And then and then they have a billion dollars to bail out BlockFi and they have a uh, 500 million to bail out Voyager and they have and you like it could literally just slam all these together and say something's broken here, right? There's there's something that doesn't add up about these numbers and now you've got like your smoking gun. That's just one example, but you could potentially do that, you know, at, 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 with with any combination of things, and really kind of glean insight uh, from the noise of most of today's news by having that source material. And you do need the source material to put into these models; otherwise, you're going to run into copyright issues. So, I think um, I think the economics of the news business are more interesting. I think doing it in a de- decentralized way is more interesting, given the incentive mismatches. And, you know, every time I talk about it out loud, I kind of want to do it. So my, yeah, my team's going to be, my team's going to be pissed that this is the bonus, but it's, we'll it's, see. A, it's exciting. Guy. <laughs> and like, so, so the last thing I'll say, cause, um, I know you've been with us for, for, for a while mm-hmm. and I just wanted to get your thoughts on this and this has been very helpful is, um, uh, you know, I noticed number five, I think number four on your top people to watch list was citizen journalists. And I look at that was actually a success in 2022. If we look at like yep. you, you named Molly White and <laughs> autism capital and autism capital is doing all these things about SBF. Another one that comes to mind is that uh, Twitter account Zach XBT, just doing yep. du- deep due diligence on like crypto influencers and surfacing the grift and just being like, "Hey, look at this guy!" Like, so if we can coordinate and unify some of that citizen journalist energy in some sort of a DAO structure, I mean, that starts to get really exciting. I don't know what that looks like, Ryan. I. David and I certainly don't have time for it right now, but um, we are cheering on whoever's listening to this and, and wants to start spinning that up and thinking about mm-hmm. it. And uh, yeah, thanks for weighing in on this. Um, appreciate it. That's your bonus episode right there. Right, thanks, guys. <laughs> Happy holidays. With that, we are done this time. Take care. Bye. As always, risks and disclaimers got to let you know, none of this has been financial advice. You don't get any of that from Bankless. Uh, DeFi is risky. So is ETH. So is crypto so is web three you could lose what you put in but we are headed west this is the frontier it's not for everyone but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey thanks a lot hey we hope you enjoyed the video if you did head over to bankless hq right now to develop your crypto investing skills and learn how to free yourself from banks and gain your financial independence we recommend joining our daily newsletter podcast and community as a bankless premium subscriber to get the most out of your bankless experience You'll get access to our market analysis, our alpha leaks, and exclusive content, and even the Bankless token for airdrops, raffles, and unlocks. If you're interested in crypto, the Bankless community is where you want to be. 
Click the link in the description to become a Bankless Premium subscriber today. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the channel for in-depth interviews with industry leaders, Ask Me Anythings, and weekly roll-ups where we summarize the week in crypto and other fantastic content. Thanks everyone for watching and being on the journey as we build out the Bankless Nation.